welcome to A Wee Bit of War, a podcast dedicated to telling the stories of Northern Ireland during the Second World War. I'm your host, Scott Edgar, and in this episode, we're joined by the fantastic Irish-American author and filmmaker, Mary Pat Kelly. Mary Pat Kelly, uh, thank you very much for uh, joining us on the Wartime NI podcast, A Wee Bit of War. Uh, you have the dubious distinction of being our first ever guest, so uh, you're very welcome and we are honoured to have you. Um, for our thank listen- you, I'm honoured to be here. For our listeners who maybe, maybe don't know you and your work, could you give us just a little introduction? Uh, who are you and uh, what drew you to this uh, area? Okay, my name is Mary Pat Kelly. I live in New York, although I grew up in Chicago and still consider myself a Chicagoan in my roots. Um, I came to New York in 1970. Um, I I had quite a history before that, but I'm the oldest of five girls and one boy. And when we would come home from school, we'd run up to my father with all our stories and he would say, summarize girls, summarize. So I'm gonna try to summarize. (laughs) So, in 1970, I came to New York. My family was, had moved from Chicago. I went to NYU film school uh, be, through a very serendipitous meeting with a young film student called Martin Scorsese, which is another whole story. And um, while I was here, I worked in the media, did various things, went to graduate school, but I had a big break when I got a job at Good Morning America in 1976. And one of my jobs was to book guests and find interesting people. And there was a young man called Ted Smith, who was the media uh, representative for the Irish embassy. And he suggested a guest called John Hume, who was not very well known in the United States at that time. This is 1976. So I met Mr. Hume and like everyone else, I was extremely impressed. And I really felt his message of peace and reconciliation was really important in the US, which had a very um, nebulous kind of understanding of what the conflict in Northern Ireland was all about. And he was speaking sense and he was so charismatic. Unfortunately, the big producers at Good Morning America were not interested in having him as a guest because moderation is not good television, they said. However, I had my own segment called Face Off where you could get two people to argue an issue. So I went back to Ted and I said, tell Mr. Hume that he can be in this kind of debate. But I said, it won't be a real debate. He can just state his issues. And the word came back. Mr. Hume says Northern Ireland is too complicated to reduce to a yes, no proposition. So and I I said to Ted, doesn't he know we just beat the Today Show and the ratings? But that was my introduction to John Hume. And I met him and I was so impressed with what he was trying to do in Northern Ireland and felt it was a message that had to get out. And I, um, after I left Good Morning America, I worked for Saturday Night Live and that led me to Hollywood. So for a few years, I made some money. And in, a, in 1983, I decided maybe I could make the documentary about John Hume and the people of Northern Ireland who wanted peace, because that was the issue here. And I was thinking recently, um, the Good Friday Agreement, I mean, when you think of what the vote for the referendum was, 
95% in the Republic, 81% in the North. I mean, those are amazing figures saying yes to peace. So I made the documentary, I called it To Live for Ireland with friends, with borrowed footage, and it was on PBS and it, it did well. It won a lot of prizes. Mike Farrell was the narrator. So I felt, okay, that was a step forward. However, then that put me in contact with a lot of people from Northern Ireland, especially a woman called Maybeth Fenton, who was running kind of an unofficial embassy of Northern Ireland in New York and was really attracting a lot of journalists and a lot of people to see it in a broader context. And through her, I met Ian Henderson. And I was thinking, I guess this would be 1990. And Ian Henderson, who was head of the Northern Ireland Tourist Board, was very, very interested in the whole US involvement in World War II in Northern Ireland and had written a monograph. And I interviewed him. I was writing for Irish America Magazine. And the editor there, Patricia Hardy, was very interested too. So um, I wrote the article. And of course, Americans did not know that there were 300,000 American stationed in Northern Ireland during World War II. So we were just coming up to the 50th anniversary. And Ian, Maybeth, David Boyce and I got together and we decided, okay, we're going to do a documentary. And luckily, Maybeth Fenton was friendly with Walter Cronkite, who had been in Northern Ireland during World War II as a correspondent, had been in Derry and had great stories about crossing the border to get butter and eggs and that people would wait on the border with raincoats. And the idea was if you put on a raincoat and covered your uniform, you weren't technically deserting. You just were going over the border for breakfast, you know. So wonderful stories. And at that time, Milburn Hinkey, who was the first man off the boat, we're coming up to the anniversary, January 26th, um, which when the first expeditionary force ever in World War II of the US troops landed in Belfast. And most of them had been in National Guard units in the States. So they were young, they were from the Midwest. Milburn Hickey was a, a perfect re representative and he was willing to come back to Northern Ireland. So he, the other group was uh, Darby's Rangers that were formed from volunteers from the Expeditionary Force. They were the only um, American unit ever founded outside the United States. They were put together in Carrickfergus. And there's a monument now in Carrickfergus. And um, Tuck, Smith, we, Tuck Smith was a young naval aviator. And before Pearl Harbor, the British were training on Catalina flying boats, PBYs, off Lock Aaron. And Tuck Smith went over to work with them. This is before Pearl Harbor. And it's during that early time before the US entered the war, there was a lot of opposition to the US getting into the war, a lot of bad memories from World War I, a lot of America first kinds of things. And Roosevelt, Tuck, Tuck Smith told me, Roosevelt said to him, if they find out you're over there helping the British RAF, they will be impeach me. So that's where we were. But Tuck Smith came over and um, in the documentary, I was able to tell the story of how he was the one that discovered the Bismarck when the great warship was trying to escape into the Atlantic, which would have just been terrible for shipping. Things were bad enough. And he stayed on station. But because he wasn't supposed to be there for 50 years, he gave credit to the co-pilot. 
And it was just when the co-pilot died and told the truth that Tuck admitted it. So he came over. So the documentary is called Home Away From Home, The Yangs in Ireland. Phil Coulter wrote a wonderful theme that has become a hit in its own uh, right, Home Away From Home, The Yangs in Ireland. And um, the, the last part of it was that Derry had the only US Navy base, the biggest one, and it was the home port for the destroyer escorts. So I was able to find, remember this is 91, 92. These men were in their early seventies. They were, and they had wonderful memories of Northern Ireland because my real aim was to tell the Northern Ireland story without concentrating on the troubles, to talk about the hospitality, about the good humor, about the beautiful scenery, the music. And that's what we did in the documentary. And they all had memories. They, they all had great stories. And um, one funny thing, now that he's passed, uh, Walter Cronkite, I, I said, you know, a lot of people in Northern Ireland are going to see this. They might remember you and get in touch. And he said, well, there's only one person that I would really want to be in touch with. And he said, I don't know where she is now. And I said, well, you know, she'll probably find you. And he said, well, I don't know if my wife, how she'd feel about that. And I said, oh, you know, we've brought people back with their wives. They understand they were young. There were connections. And he goes, not my wife. <laughs> so, but those kinds of wonderful human stories. And that was my purpose. First of all, this was a very important part of history that was forgotten. And second of all, to show Northern Ireland in a different way. And um, so that's why I've loved working on it. And it's caught on. I found out that there were all this happened through serendipitous providential. I found I had in 1995, many of the US Navy veterans came back for VE Day to the 50th anniversary. And because there were so many Navy veterans, um, Snuffy Smith, uh, Admiral Leighton Smith came and we had a ball. It was really fun. And, you know, Northern Ireland knows how to give a party. We know that. And when he went back, he was the NATO commander. That was when the young airman, Scott O'Grady, was shot down over Bosnia. And he was rescued by the Marines. And uh, Admiral Smith was in charge of the rescue. So I called to congratulate him. And he said to me, you have to write about the Marines. So I did, met the Marines. And I kept thinking, too bad there were no Marines in Northern Ireland, because they would love to come. Well, guess what? 500 Marines stationed in Derry to guard the Navy base at Beach Hill House, which is my friends own the hotel, Patsy O'Kane and the Donnelly family. So that became an annual uh, connection. So I just found that because people had such great memories and they told their families and they wanted to come back and it broke the idea that when my, my husband is from Tyrone, and his own nephews, when they served in the American forces, contemporary now, like in the 80s, they were not allowed to go to Northern Ireland. It was considered too dangerous for serving American servicemen. So we just brought a lot back because I think one of the best slogans ever from the Northern Ireland Tourist Board is you never know unless you go. And among the best groups that went back were the uh, crew of the USS Mason. They were the only African-American sailors to take a warship into combat. And when I was doing my research about Derry as a Navy base, I found newspaper articles 
where they said the first time they were ever treated as Americans was in Northern Ireland. And so they told their story that became its own documentary called Proudly We Served, and then a feature film starring Stephen Ray and um, Ozzie Davis called Proud. And they came back and just to top things off, they met Queen Elizabeth. So I feel like we have a, there's a skit that is done in the States about baseball is very good to me. Well, I figure Northern Ireland and its connection to the US forces has been very good to me. Great adventures. You have certainly done a lot uh, for, for those veterans and for the people of Northern Ireland in uh, educating uh, us all on these things. Um, we'll come back just briefly to a couple of the characters that you mentioned there, but um, we are going to be putting this podcast out on the 26th of January. Um, so could you take us back 80 years and just set the scene in Belfast. What, what happened on that day when uh, Private First Class Milburn Henke uh, stepped ashore in Belfast? Well, first of all, as I said, until Pearl Harbor, there was a great deal of opposition to the US entry into World War II. So then came Pearl Harbor. And the initial feeling was, there was always a debate about, do we go, for the Japanese, do we go for the Nazis? But Britain and Northern Ireland had been at war, you know, already for three years, and things were getting very difficult. So the idea was, okay, we'll start in Europe, but we'll start. Northern Ireland would be a good jumping-off place. It would be a place to train. It would be fairly safe. It was far enough from Germany that they couldn't easily bomb. Although, as you know, there were two or three raids. However, they felt it was fairly safe. Now, crossing the Atlantic, crossing the North Atlantic was very difficult because the U-boats really controlled the North Atlantic. They were, they were um, sinking a ship, you know, every 10 minutes, huge amounts of tons. They couldn't, there was a blockade of Northern, of Britain, and there were, it was impossible to get across. And that's when they decided to do the escorts. So you've got to imagine, okay, 10,000 men in this troop ship headed for Northern Ireland, crossing the North Atlantic, you know, a sitting duck for the U-boats with these little DEs kind of scurrying along. There's a wonderful book that was a movie called The Good Shepherd because the British Navy had DEs also. So kind of shepherding these ships across. So you can imagine the relief when they arrived in Belfast and the, the reception they got. There's great pictures of the shipboard shipyard workers greeting them. And I mean, the reason why I called the documentary Home Away From Home was every single veteran I talked to talked about how warm and welcoming the people were. However, that doesn't take away from how important it was historically. And at that moment, I mean, it, it looked like the Nazis were gonna win. I mean, it looked like things were very bleak. Um, we had a wonderful service in Carrickfergus and uh, it's in the documentary. And the pastor gave a beautiful sermon talking about how, how nervous and how afraid people were. And here came the Americans and it was kind of a, a beacon of hope and connection. And so many of the people that came had relatives north and south of, of the border. 
and they made connections. And there's um, in the documentary, I used a letter from Ulster, which was made contemporaneously of these two Americans in a Jeep driving around Northern Ireland. And I drove Ian Henderson crazy with this, but the number one song on the hit parade was Johnny Doughboy found a rose in Ireland. Kate Smith, but there were many, many. And it was all about how um, he found a girl that the Blarney in her voice took him back to, reminded him of his mother. Johnny Doughboy found a rose in Ireland. The fairest flower that Erin ever grew. It was, it was like these connections that had been severed a century before were now being reconnected. And then the training began, and that was the Rangers, they, the first uh, commando unit. And there were all kinds of, a lot of training and a lot of getting ready because they thought they were going to invade Europe right away. The invasion of North Africa went from Northern Ireland. And then, of course, it all came together on D-Day, but we're a little ahead of ourselves now. We just have to imagine these troop ships pulling up to Belfast and com coming off and being greeted by pipes and, and cheers. And it, there was a feeling that, okay, we're together now and we're gonna win. And officially the, uh, the first GI to step ashore was Melbourne Henke. Uh, that's not strictly uh, true because quite a few uh, GIs had already disembarked from another ship and were, were there on the quayside to greet him. But he was chosen as, let's call it, the poster boy, the media-friendly, smiling face of the American GI. Right. How, he was how kind did of your typical American Midwest. And the other interesting thing was even before January, as you know, all through the summer of 1941, they were, there were uh, CBs, there were Navy, US Navy personnel in Derry building the naval base and building in an infrastructure, but they were dressed as civilians. And I had fun with that in, in the uh, movie where the Derry people said, we knew, we knew what you were up to. All of a sudden comes Pearl Harbor and all these men now are dressed as in uniform. But you're right, they picked Milburn Hinky because he was kind of Midwest and, and straight talking, the American kind of John Wayne figure, although he was a little guy. He was a little guy and also in, in perhaps uh, some little shades of irony here, his father was German. Right, exactly. Yeah. So um, I know it's. Yeah, officially the first American GI to set foot in Europe uh, had a German father, but I, I believe from, from what I've read that that had no influence on Henke at all, and he had a postcard with him um, from his father, and uh, I believe the, the postcard just said, give him hell, boy. Yeah, well, he when he came back in 91, 92, I guess, he had only good memories, and although you know, they all sublimated the negative things. I mean, like the Rangers, they were in some of the worst battles. They had a 110% casualty rate. So not, you know, so I remember one of them telling me in those days when you came home, it was the good war. You were supposed to just get on with it and not think about what had happened. And I think that was hinky too. Another sad thing that's in the documentary is as I said, they made friends. And when you say about him being German, there were a lot of Italian Americans in the services and they found 
Italian people in Northern Ireland, many of them that have the ice cream shops. And, and I remember one woman telling me how they would come to their house for Sunday dinner. And then after D-Day, after the invasion, they started to get the letters that they had written to these servicemen returned, stamped, deceased. So there was, there was a lot of sadness too, but a lot of happiness, a lot of marriages. I read one statistic that said 25% of the Marines in Derry married dairy women, so. Uh, that, that may or may not surprise uh, some of our listeners up in Derry. Um, like I said, there were a lot of relationships um, and the, the GIs that came over were a big hit with the ladies in Northern Ireland. Um, I remember reading in your book a quote from, uh, I think it just comes from a Belfast woman um, who said that uh, she married a sailor in 1941, but boy, she wished she'd waited for a yank in 42. Um, were, were the <laughs> stories of these relationships something that you came across a lot? A lot. And um, the other part of this story that's interesting is when I first started doing the research, um, the National Archives here that has everything told me, no, no, there wasn't much about um, Northern Ireland during World War II. No, there wasn't anything about, um, especially about the Navy and Derry. One man said to me, dear, the Marines were in Iceland, not Ireland. You know, they were quite dismissive. However, I persevered and eventually we found 150 boxes of information. And among the information were requests to marry from, you know, you had to, they had to get their um, commanding officer to sign off. So you really had a lot of stories right there. Um, when, we, when we came back, I guess in 92, um, a man and his daughter came back and he had wanted to marry, but because they were, she was Catholic and he was Protestant, they, and they couldn't find someone to marry them. And then he was shipped out and they never really connected again until 1992, so. Well, that's fantastic. They came, they came back together after all those years. Yeah, well, uh, they, I don't know what happened, but I remember they were happy to see each other. Yeah. You know, we forget how young they all were. I mean, these kids, you know, they were 19, 20, 21 years old. And I think um, the relationships were, most of them did, were, it was a more innocent time. It was all about dances. And, and um, Phil Coulter told me one of the reasons why there are so many professional musicians in Derry now is because during the war, you could actually make a living playing for the dances. The other cool thing about Derry and Mark Durkin's uncles owned a bar and they refused to discriminate. There was still segregation and discrimination but people in Northern Ireland wouldn't go along with it. They, I mean, Mark has a letter, a copy of a letter one of his uncles wrote to Eisenhower saying they all wear the same uniform. They're gonna be treated the same way. So I think that was, you know, not to get into the whole, but many of the African-Americans that served in World War II, they were the leaders when they came back because they had been treated in a different way. And Northern Ireland can be very proud of that record. I have read that uh, the, the treatment received by, uh, by um, Black uh, service personnel uh, during the Second World War in Northern Ireland did uh, indirectly influence uh, decisions that were made uh, after the war to uh, get rid of uh, segregation in the US Army. 
Um, and again, you'd mentioned Absolutely the, true. the uh, USS Mason um, and, and lots of stories like that uh, coming back. Uh, one of the things that we, you know, we've, we've kind of touched on, on politics and you mentioned the uh, issues between Protestants and Catholics marrying there, which has just uh, put into my mind uh, the pocketbook um, which all of the GIs are oh, yes. issued with. And uh, of course, I think some of the advice in that, um, you know, it, in some ways it was a, a tourist guide. In other ways, it was, you know, telling you table manners for, uh, you know, if you were invited for dinner with an Irish family. But one of the big things that possibly still applies today was do not talk politics and do not talk religion. Um, do you know anything about how that book came about? Well, I know that, it was done, um, as you say, half of a tourist guide and half trying to get people to be sensitive to the cultural issues. And, um, you know, America has a lot of problems, but at that point, the religious divide wasn't, you know, was not front and center. So I think most of them were young and they caught on. And I think the hospitality was such that people didn't ask people's religion or didn't ask. And um, so I think it was a time really where some of that was suspended, except sometimes the marriages, like this one couple, I know they had a hard time, but, um, yeah, there, uh, it was such an odd thing because in many ways they felt they were going to a very familiar society and then they would every once in a while stumble against these issues, you know, so. Yeah, there are hundreds if not thousands of stories um, that we could uh, tell of the Americans time in Northern Ireland. Why do you feel that 80 years later this is still an important thing for us to remember or an important thing for us to talk about? Well I think it was a time when the world pulled together. I mean right now we're seeing so much division in the U.S. It was a time when we pulled together, just the manufacturing. I mean, the idea that they were building three and four and five planes a day, and now we can't even, you know, pave our streets. I mean, and that's a that's a mundane thing. But I think that spirit of cooperation was important. I obviously, the Nazi threat was. I, I still really haven't taken it in exactly how devastating and how was it possible of the Holocaust? I mean, I have friends that are the children of Holocaust survivors. It still, you know, boggles the mind. I mean, certainly it had to be stopped. So, I mean, on a geopolitical thing, but also I think for Northern Ireland, it seemed to me that hospitality in my mind, I've always had the experience is the greatest virtue. And to see it extended to these young men far away from home, not knowing what the future would mean. And uh, uh, Phil has a great line in Home Away From Home, you know, will I ever remember the sun rising on Ben Own, the laughter of children, I'm sailing into hell. So to have that experience of a connection and beauty, I mean, every single veteran I talked to talked about how beautiful the scenery was and the landscape. My favorite was Mr. Dufo, one of the Mason veterans kept shaking his head because I guess a woman apologized for the rain. He said, can you imagine that? Someone apologizing for the rain because the sun made Ireland look so beautiful. So I think it's important to remember that it is possible to connect. It is possible to do something positive together. And I think we really have to remember that right now. 
Well, it has been an absolute pleasure connecting with you uh, in this conversation. And Ireland still remains a very beautiful place. And I believe you have plans to uh, come and see it again for yourself soon. Yes, I plan to spend the summer in Derry, which to me is the light at the end of the COVID tunnel. And uh, I hope everyone remains safe and um, that we all meet again. As that song, as Vera Lynn used to sing, we'll meet again, who knows where, who knows when. And that's my prayer for all of us. And I feel it's an honor. I feel it was very serendipitous, providential. I thank Ted Smith. I thank maybe Beth Fenton. I thank Ian Henderson. And of course, John and Pat Hume, all the people in Derry that were so open to me and connected me to these stories. And as you say, there's still many. I think it's very important now for the next generation to make sure that they ask their parents and their grandparents what they remember, because it's very easy to lose these stories. And that's why I salute you. Thank you very much, Scott, for what you're doing. I think it, it's really important because you know that old saying, if you don't know history, you're doomed to repeat it. And we want to remember the good things because we need to hold on to those. Well, we will certainly do our best to keep telling those stories. Um, it has been an absolute honor uh, having you on the podcast and, and getting to have this conversation with you. Can you just remind our listeners about your book documentary? Where can they, they get a hold of that or for a read? or a Well, um, Apple Tree Press published the book called Home Away From Home, The Yanks in Ireland. Also, I believe you can just Google it and find it streaming or whatever. And they might enjoy the feature film, Proud, with Stephen Ray and Ozzie Davis. And um, I think, and also, um, Proudly We Serve the Men of the Mason. It's a great story. And we had enough of the living people that, that could tell the story that it gave, gives it a, a sense of authenticity. Well, we hope to maybe have you back on here again and tell some more of those stories sometime. Um, but for I'd now, love that, Scott. Thank you very much. For now, Mary Pat Kelly, it has been a privilege. Uh, thank you very much for your time. And uh, we'll chat again My soon. My pleasure. My pleasure. Take care. Stay safe. Subscribe to A Wee Bit of War on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. That way, you'll never miss an episode. Tell your friends, tell your family, tell your co-workers break all the rules of the Official Secrets Act, and why not leave a review to help others find the podcast? Thank you for joining myself and Mary Pat Kelly. I look forward to your company again next time for another wee bit of war.